Welcome to the Queer Body Podcast, where we are redefining the edges of identity and healing with your host, Dr. Laura Polak, a somatic healer and chiropractor. Let's join the podcast. Welcome to the Queer Body. And today we have Stacey Haynes, who is just really an amazing woman who has written two books. And I'm going to have you introduce yourself, please, for our audience. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to have you. Wow, introduce oneself. How do we do that? (laughs) (laughs) Truthfully, if I just said who I really feel like I am, is I feel like I am a a person who has a a deep, pretty self-discovered spiritual path Mm. that um, really calls me to deeply integrate um, really these questions of how do we keep healing and transforming as people? Um, How do we keep bringing that into our relationships? And for me, that is always inseparable. But then from how do we change our social conditions um, so that what they're supporting is freedom, right, equity, cooperation, and really being in our, our, our right relationship and our right role on the planet. I am now basically 30 years into social and climate justice work, um, having done different things over time, but long time inside of that, and also just hitting 30 years inside of somatics. It's about embodied transformation, right, a body-centered path and methodology focused on, on healing and transformation. And then I am a queer stepmom of three um, who I raised, which will be an interesting part of our conversation because I don't think I've ever seen queer stepparents. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I just hit I just hit fifty five. Feels even very different than mm-hmm. fifty. Like I can just feel a deep change of perspective, and my questions are changing. And then you know, really looking out to that question that we we all get to face but but how how much longer will i be here and with that time you know how do i want to be and what do i want to do so th- there's a there's a spontaneous self introduction i love your spontaneous self introduction thank you um you're touching on some of the most important points that i want to talk about today which is um one what you know there's just all these conversations about what it means to be embodied and how we practice embodiment, particularly for, um, I hope some of the community that I'm reaching, these are new concepts too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, your definition of what that is and how we do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, I think it's a wonderful topic, how to stay embodied um, for me right now with teenagers or (laughs) being a step-parent to three children. And then the social justice piece is we're both white-bodied humans. And how we step into social justice and climate work from a body perspective, from a different perspective. One of the things we talk about on my show a bunch is the cultural matrix we're living in and then how we work with that on the edges in creating who we are as queer people. So any of those that spark your curiosity, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Mm, Awesome. Um, I love all of those. Let me first just talk about what I'm going to call it embodied transformation rather than embodiment. Let me let me kind of put up two definitions. So somatics, right, is kind of the broad name for the field of different ways of going about embodied transformation. And soma uh, basically is the best word we have in English to 
kind of perceive ourselves in a different way. Soma means the living organism in its wholeness. Mm. So it's our physicality, it's our emotions, it's how we relate our relational stances, it's the actions we take and don't take. And it really is a counterbalance to a very Western Cartesian paradigm that any of us trained in the West really inherited, which is this idea of kind of thoughts over matter. And we can really see how well that's going. Um, (laughs) Or not. (laughs) Yes. So embodied transformation is really coming into this view or framework or experience that we're these whole dynamic organisms and that we grow, change, and evolve in a holistic way. Hmm. And that just thinking about something differently doesn't create a change in how we be, relate, or act. It usually has us get into a certain kind of over-managing battle within ourselves that ends up not really working that well, especially under pressure, right? Because our deepest adaptations, our deepest survival strategies, our deepest habits pop out when we're under pressure. And I don't know about you, or we are just chatting about this in our prep. It just seems like constant complex pressure at this moment in our conditions and at this moment in history. I mean, pandemic, ongoing murdering of Black people, increase of white supremacy and race, race uh, uh, fascism and, and expression of that. And we all, I think, know, although there's a lot of collective denial as well, but we're at this edge around how we have been treating and exploiting the planet. Um, that is that is um, just, you know, is at a critical point. So I just feel like there's a lot of collective pressure. And from somatic point of view, what pops out then are these very deep survival strategies that often aren't aligned with our vision and our values. So how somatics or embodied transformation understands transformation is that we know when we've transformed, we know that we've transformed when our, our, our vision, our longings and our values align um, with our actions, right, and how we relate, that alignment becomes more and more, even when we're under pressure. Mm. So it means we're getting to transform these things that we've embodied because of how we're trained by conditions, right, like whiteness and white privilege. Um, we can transform the traumas we've been holding and storing. Um, and again, from a why I've stayed in somatic so long is it really it's so effective, it works, and it helps us transform what we might call our unconscious ways, you know, again, that we be an act and perceive it just in a really both deep and pragmatic way. So that was a lot. That was a lot. And it was amazing. And I appreciate it because I think I've mentioned this in my podcast before, but I was raised by a psychiatrist and a pastoral counselor. And a pastoral counselor mm-hmm. is somebody who works with emotions through spirit. I'm a psychiatrist most people are familiar with, and that I could talk my way out of a paper bag. I'm really good at explaining it all and really bullshitting till the cows come home. But embodiment practices don't allow for that. So the places Mm -hmm. where I was not really meeting the truth for myself really got called up on the carpet when I do embodiment practices, Mm -hmm. which... I so appreciate that there's even a movement. Like when I started this work and you and I were both talking about 30 years of of work, 
And I'm just going to say for our audience today, I, I am feeling tired of all the crap that's going on. And I'm feeling tired of 30 years of out there doing active work and going, is this ever going to freaking change? Because it just doesn't seem like it's changing. And so I'm tired. I'm just going to name it because <laughs> I'm bringing that to the show today. And from that tired place, where can we still create and the body always being a sacred place for me? Like just coming back and going, okay, be with your body. And if my body feels like crap, which it does today, be with that, sit with that, mm -hmm. sit with what's real and that the mm -hmm. body can never bullshit where your mind mm -hmm. really can. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you saying all of that. And you know, I feel like so many of us who've really longed for either personal healing and change or social change, I really trust that we keep like reaching for the best tools available. Right. And then luckily that keeps evolving. Mm -hmm. Right. And whether it's considered a deep remembering, because obviously holistic embodied practices, I think have been with humans forever mm -hmm. and have been like held, kept and protected through many indigenous traditions for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I, I find it hopeful that more and more people are longing for something deeper and more transformative because I think it, it matches what we need in our times. And, you know, one thing I do want to say about the body, because it's not the magic pill either, yeah, is that two things live in our, are going to call it our somas, because it's really our, our embodied self, mm -hmm. right? Is that there are there is this deep wisdom and truth telling, which you're pointing to. And there are also very deep habits that aren't truth-telling. Yes. So one way I, I like to think about this, so somatics really looks at there being these core needs like that are built into our, our psychobiologies, if you want to think about it that way, or our psycho-spiritual biologies. But, you know, we are, we are built to track for safety, right, for, those who, for, for ourselves and those who we're taught to identify with. We are built to belong. We're social animals. We're not, we're not solo animals. And so we're always going, where's the herd? Where's the pack? How do I fit in? How do I belong? Or like we, we, we deeply want to give and receive love, mm -hmm. right? And then we have a deep need for a sense of dignity or worth, right? Like I, like I matter, mm -hmm. right? And then we also have the material needs. Like we need clean water. We need organic food. We need... We need safe housing, right? We need good education, mm -hmm. and we need—we actually need touch because mm -hmm. we're social animals. We need—we need—we need nurturing touch. So, but but what what happens is we also have these deep automatic ways we adapt to try to navigate those things, and because of trauma and oppression, because of the deep inequities built into our economy and society. Sometimes those survival strategy or, or strategies or adaptations start to, they just get in so deep. We act from them automatically. We think from them automatically, even when they don't serve our healing, right? right. Even when they don't serve what we need. So sometimes, boom, what goes off in the body is actually a deep habit that we've identified with that isn't as truth-telling. And 
you know, one thing I want to say about this and whiteness is I really think there's this very deep, hundreds of years old at this point, right? This very deep association for, for that we get trained into as white people that safety and domination go together, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That belonging means like, you no, know, white people are centered or people who are class privileged are centered. So there's this weird miswiring and that's a bad metaphor because we're organic. There's this mis- this habit that got trained into us around safety, belonging, and dignity that also has some lies built into it. This is one of the reasons I feel like healing in this deeply embodied way is so necessary so we can feel those, 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 those deep truths, learn them, and transform ourselves to be more and more aligned with them. Does that make any sense to you? It makes so much sense to me. And um, sometimes I would say, God, I wish I could have chosen the other way where we're just sleepwalking. (laughs) You know, (laughs) sometimes I envy my friends who um, aren't doing all the transformative work. You know, this this Mm. part of transformation is that it's never done. We are continuing Mm. to grow. We're continuing to see where... There's more room for us to expand, see what we're doing, not as well as we could be because of what I would call cultural conditioning. Um, And again, you know, what we've been raised in, just in this Mm -hmm. stew, this cultural stew of whiteness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I so appreciate that you're you're bringing this up. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm happy to answer the same question. Perfect. You know, to me, what what longing in you, what calling in you were you following that led you toward healing and social change? You know, it's a funny question, Stacey. Um, I will out myself in the fact that my father escaped the Holocaust at a very young age. And so he was doing social justice work for my entire childhood. So I was raised, as we talk about the cultural matrix, I was raised in that matrix. And I was really taught that if you aren't helping $2 a day farmers move out of poverty, then you're not doing anything in the world. And really over and over again, I heard scalability. How many people are you reaching? How many people are you reaching? You need to reach more. So I was kind of indoctrinated into social justice. Which is is a funny thing to say, but it's true. And so Mm. I had to move back from that and go, all right, that is what I was taught. What if that is true for me? What is that? um, What is my calling? What is my work to be here? And for me, my calling has a lot more to do with helping people feel safe in their bodies and knowing what their gift is so that they can contribute it to the world, regardless of the conditioning that they were in. So, you know, there was kind of a teasing out, but I really did choose um, the gift that my father gave me, which is social advocacy for people who are in a less privileged place. And I did have the privilege of traveling places and seeing people in very different cultures, living in different ways, Um, that influenced me significantly to wanting to help more so people who um, don't have the financial capacity to get Mm -hmm. the services they need, which 
in fact, in our culture happens to be brown and black bodies more than white bodies. So that would be the community I was serving more frequently. But yeah, it's still the same. It's the call to help people really find themselves in their bodies Mm -hmm. um, with what is it I'm here to do and how, how can I do that so that I'm not following what I've been cultured into, but Mm -hmm. what is true for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. I thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for asking. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was not raised in a social justice family. You know, mine was just, it seemed to me so deeply that we are here to learn that we are here to be connected in a positive way and, you know, I'm, I'm out about this in my books too, but I'm also a survivor of child sexual abuse. And I feel like I knew how deeply it was wrong. And then I thought I was wrong. There's all that confusion around that early trauma. Mm-hmm. But I did have this very deep longing for, you know, something else, something more whole, something more life affirming that, you know, really following that led me to somatics or embodied transformation left me, let led me to movement work. Mm. And it's just so interesting. Like I do think, think there's something in our, our soma, our, our living organism that profoundly moves toward life. That path can look many ways, but I think it's toward more life individually, more connection and then collectively You know, I also think we've been trained into the separation that there's just the individual, which is so much about capitalism and neoliberalism and the individualism that got so trained into us as, as, as folks, you know, any of us raised in the United States, but there's this, this reconnecting of the individual and collective that I think is so deep in us and can be a sense of, you know, uh, of coming home, right. To the I and to the we. So I feel like I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I'm really appreciating this this conversation. I'm really appreciating the conversation as well. And I'm kind of kind of weave it back into this place of, wow, you know, I really was blessed in being born to a family that the we was always the most important thing. That was a gift that I was given. But this exhaustion, this tiredness mm-hmm. of feeling the collective trauma all the time. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm surprised. I feel, and I don't believe in this cultural hallucination, so I want to name that for myself, but I feel myself getting old. I'm mm-hmm. going, ah, that's somebody else's problem. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to me, when that stuff happens, and believe me, I relate, you know, I'm in this real inquiry right now about in times of what I think are increasing chaos. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously increasing inequity if we look at the split of resources, but it's also increasing organizing in response to that inequity. But it's almost like everything is a, a certain level of stress and de-stress. And then when we look at what, what, what humans have done um, to climate and the natural world, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm in this question a lot about how do we resource ourselves and each other mm-hmm. in, in these types of times? And I do not at all have an answer. I can tell you some <laughs> of them. But I think, wow, it is such a deep time to go, what brings us that deep connection to land, spirit, and each other? Mm-hmm. And how do we make a a daily, a weekly, a monthly practice of that. So the nourishment is happening at the regular 
instead of like sprinting for five years and then pausing and resourcing. Yes. You know, being yes. a person who's done some long sprints, mm-hmm. you know, there is a cost to me and my health. There is a cost to, you know, aspects of my leadership coming less from being kind of present and resourced and more from like habit and hurry up and, yeah. and a certain level of panic. Yeah. Right. So I just, I'm like, oh, it's, what's at stake is huge right now. Yes. <laughs> and at think point, how do we take that so seriously that we're like, nourish, resource, connect, you know, thank land, thank the stars, be connected and then go, okay, what are the right next actions? And those actions can be within a 10 year vision or a 50 year vision or a two year vision, right? Whatever it is for folks. But so that's one of the things I've been contemplating because I have my moments too of like, I am so, I would say overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. overwhelmed with like, feeling what's happening with the planet, with what just happened in Buffalo, with, you know, what is being done in our names as white people? And then what are our own mistakes, right? Like just going, how do we be about transformation even in these conditions? Anyway, that is some of what I'm contemplating and taking very much to heart and very seriously because this nourishment that's steady, that's ongoing, that's connected with each other just feels like an essential piece for navigating these times with with some level of love and skill. Yeah. And, you know, I I would like to bring back art. Like, you know, when when we were doing ACT UP, when we were doing Queer Nation, and and, and I always feel like it was old lady things to say, but there was always art. Like I couldn't Mm -hmm. be the talking mouthpiece. It's not really my gift. But I could mm-hmm. still walk. I could mm-hmm. do hand claps. We could spill blood. We could do makeouts at places where people were not <laughs> allowing, you know, gay people. Um, but the action was fun. We had fun, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I, I would love to see that resurrected. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, the anger is draining for me. Um, only because I find myself having to explain things that I feel like people should already know. And I don't want mm-hmm. to anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. uh, and that's, uh, you know, just up to people to do their own work on race or gender or any of those things. And I'm, you know, those conversations I'm done with, but but art I can do, like I can blow bubbles Mm. at a protest or I can march or sing or, you know, some of the things that are a little bit more, um, yeah, I remember in Carnival, I would dance down all of Mission Street, like five miles on stilts. That I would love to bring that kind of stuff back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, ways to create it, keep it fresh. Totally, totally, totally. And, you know, it's so interesting, I think, uh, for me, I find as I age, it's like, how do I get really present with present time, Mm -hmm. which is not a small thing. Like, to me, that's part of the ongoing healing path or the ongoing path of practice as well, is how do I let myself be at my age and stage and also in the moment, Mm -hmm. because 2022 Mm -hmm. as kind of by the Gregorian calendar. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, what's interesting is there is a lot of art. It just is expressing in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the Crenshaw Dairy Mart, Dairy Mart down in LA, but it is an art space and it's a black art space. And, you know, where are the, where are the pieces? And, you know, I just think about how much is 
in writing, especially in the progressive left right now, about Black joy. Yeah. You know, and again, this isn't about, um, you know, then white folks co-opting any of that, but it's noticing, it's like, where is that emergent in the landscape right now? And then how do we feed it with our attention? Yes. How do we feed it with our celebration? Of course, how do we feed it with our resources for those of us who have access to give? Or I also, I know this might sound weird, but this is back to like, where do we find the resource in current time is I am just in a practice of making sure that daily I notice natural beauty. Yeah. There's a lot of flowers blooming right now and it might seem so small, but it's another level. It helps the balance. It helps being in current time. It helps answering the question, what are our right roles now? Right? given age, stage, and conditions. Yes to the art. Yes to the music. And yes to seeing beauty everywhere. I love that practice and and do it many times in the day. So I have You were going to say one last piece, please go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. The, I don't know, during, you know, the first part of the pandemic in 2020, the, the resistance revival choir, which is, looks very queer to me. I don't know what everyone's orientation is, but made all these online YouTubes of just, I don't know, I even know how they did it visually. I'm not a, I'm not a good tech person that way, but the songs they put out, I was like, oh, and I will just listen to those. Yeah. <laughs> you get it. That's fabulous. That's a great tip. Thank you. Yeah. I have not heard anybody talk about you being queer. What's the story of your identity as a queer person? (laughs) I love this. I know we were just talking. I don't think I've been on an overtly queer podcast before. (laughs) So exactly. Well, as probably you being in high school in the eighties, I was, uh, you know, in a rural town in Colorado, it was very, very straight. And the, the, almost like the, the 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 gay or the queer people in my high school who couldn't not show their queerness. Oh, it was terrible for them. Mm-hmm. It was terrible for them. So I really met a out queer community for the first time in college. You know, in high school, what I'd say to my very close friends is like, I, I think everyone's bisexual, including me. <laughs> <Do you know? laughs> um, which, which might also still be the case. In college, I saw a, like a queer community. I was like, oh my God, that is amazing. Who are they? And it was very scary to like approach that co- community and go to the like queer and questioning groups and all of that. And there's many stories around that that are hecka funny. But my first girlfriend, and I think what I would consider my, my, my coming out was, was in college. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful for those, you know, progressive liberal arts colleges where that is possible. And I also had the, the, the time, you know, to, to find myself. I told my mother, probably my last year of college, and a couple of very funny things happened. My mom is no longer with us. She, she died in 2020. But she, she said, well, it seemed like all your friends were gay. So I maybe thought you were also, was one of the first things she said. Right. Then she said, you know, she started crying and she goes, I just don't want you to have a hard life this is a hard life and you can't have kids and you know, all the things that were still the, that thinking in the late eighties, you know, I kind of laughed at her and I said, mom, I I think me not having a hard life would have needed to start a very long time. (laughs) 
you know, I was already out about the abuse. My family was in chaos because of it. And I was like, I don't think it's the queer thing that was going to make this fun. <laughs> Just FYI. And then the very funny thing, and I'm sure this is not conscious on her part, but we were at this little apartment where I was living and I saw her glance over at the bedroom. And I thought, I can't believe she's going to ask this. And she goes, what do you do anyway? (laughs) And she meant sexually, what do you do anyway? And I was like, oh, mom, mom, you you don't need a penis for everything. And then there's also alternative penises for the people who like that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, then luckily my mom, for some reason, now this is funny, this is before I moved to the Bay. And, you know, my first job in the Bay was working at Good Vibrations. Oh, me too. I'm like, we are twins. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like parallel. So that's so funny. But my mom said, after I said that, she goes, oh, well, I have seen those Good Vibrations catalogs. And at the time, I had no idea what she was talking about. And then within a year, I was working there, which That's is so hysterical. funny. That's so funny. And I want to say, you know, I raised all my my kids in a very postmodern queer family um, with me, my partner, and then her ex, right? And then her ex had a, you know, now has a partner. My kids are all grown at this point. Um, but I came into their lives when they were two, four, and 11. Wow. And um, the youngest is now 27. About a decade ago, um, surprising to myself as well, a man came into my life and it felt like I had to come out all over again. Mm. So I very much identify as queer, um, as poly. I was surprised that there, there's also a man in my life who, who, I, who I love and feel very honoring of. So that, that is my queer journey thus far. And I want to I want to say something about being a queer parent who did not birth the children. They all have known donor dads who are kind of like uncles in their lives. All the kids were born to lesbians, but three different lesbians, mm-hmm. and then raised by 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 three of us. And one of the things that is both beautiful and scary, you know, as a non blood related queer parent. You know, all my, in quotes, my rights as a parent were based on relationship. Like I I don't have any legal rights. Now they're all grown now. So it's a different situation. You know, had they ever been hospitalized? Had they, do you know what I mean? There's so many things which we're used to thinking of as like queer partners, but queer parents, you know, and like it wasn't always easy with the the multiple parents in the mix. There were definitely moments when I was like, oh, my God, if one of them gets hit hit by a car, who's going to call me? You know, there's just this piece about how biology gets viewed in a very limited way versus how parenting gets viewed. So I I feel very thankful at this point. I feel like we have a really good container at this point. And there are many moments where I'm like, it is so beautiful. All this is based on relationship and our capacity to work things out and our ability to prioritize and hold the children as the center and the most important thing. And there were scary moments in all that too. That's, I mean, that's a piece of work all in itself to try to work it out with that many people, six people that, I mean, kudos to you. That's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> and then the politics around it are, are important. I gave birth to my son in a, uh, queer relationship. And then my partner transitioned and we were publicly out about his transition to being in his right body. But the funny thing about it is we were married 
it was annulled, but then we were officially a straight couple. So we, we, we had to be divorced, <laughs> you know, like all of it is just so silly. And, and in the end, what, what was interesting to me is that, um, I don't know if you did this, Stacey, but we, we just made sure that we both had full rights through adoption. Did you adopt your children or? So there was a moment in the state of California when uh, three-way adoption was legal. Mm. And so when the two younger kids were born, how do I say this? You need a, like a flip chart to understand my family. <laughs> yes, um, that's queerness, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. The two moms, three-way adopted the kids with their biological dad. That was the only way to do it because that was in the very early 90s. So no adoption wasn't possible for me. Because in quotes, they were already adopted. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So no, I was really like, even the word stepmom, I don't like that much because I feel like it has so many negative social connotations. It's like, I am a parent, you know, I put my love, my resources, my time and will through the end of their lives, you know, in different ways, obviously with adult children. But uh, so no, we we didn't go that route for me. That's so interesting. Um, I partnered with a second person with with my son and so Mm -hmm. the best name for her was godparent because Mm -hmm. she felt really akin to the spiritual shepherding and yeah step parent has so many like wicked you know whatever we'd have to unpack more cultural garbage but there's so much of it to work on all the time isn't there Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I want to say, um, and obviously you and I both came up and out into the queer community before gay marriage was legal. Gay marriage was super, super stressful on our kids because a lot of the gay marriage backlash happened, of course, in the schools with what kids would say to each other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, politically, I want queer people to have all the rights of gay marriage. Um, I have never been married myself. And I don't feel like it was what we meant by queer liberation. Do you know what I mean? Queer liberation is a, to me, a bigger goal. And something that I have always deeply appreciated about being queer is how deeply we have to reach into self-definition and community definition rather than following a certain norm that was handed to us. Yeah. So there's, there's something very creative inside of that hard work inside of it, but also liberating inside of it. So I just, I I, want to celebrate queerdom. (laughs) I love that. And I appreciate you saying that. And, you know, I'm just going to speak it because it's so in my heart right now that, you know, even with all of that, I live in a very liberal area of the U.S. My son was still bullied significantly for having queer parents. And I mean, you know, really, really poorly. So I, you know, the idea that we've moved past it in any way, shape or form, uh, particularly when for a while there, we appeared as a straight couple, which was Mm. a weird moment for me because I've never been closeted since I embodied my queerness. Um, But sometimes, you know, you would just go invisible. But yeah, everybody outed my son in middle school and he was beaten up for it significantly. Thank you for sharing this. This is what happened with my son too. We had two daughters and a son and that's how they all still identify as adults. And it was so much easier on the girls, Mm. but our son was also in middle school 
when gay marriage started to, you know, happen in San Francisco and then really take off across the country. And just the level of shaming, bullying, and like what I, I know queer people know this, but to be like, to feel like you're supposed to be ashamed about your family who loves you, mm. right? To feel like there's something wrong in the very container that you feel held and loved by, it just puts this profound pain and contradiction that is way bigger than a middle schooler can handle. We can barely handle as adults. I still feel so sad about that. Like it's one thing for us as an adult, right? To deal with homophobia, to deal with, anyway, you, you get it. I so get it. And I so get, you know, that feeling as a failed parent, maybe I should have been closeted and really, Mm -mm. you know, because, you know, if I had been closeted, then this wouldn't have happened to my child. You know, what the, what the fuck? I always thought that I should have, I should have like um, prepared him more. Obviously we talked about the interface with a queer family, with the world. We always went into like the Boy Scout troops and said, we are queer. Is there going to be a problem with that? Because if there is, our son isn't going to be in this, right? Or like whatever club, the soccer club, we would always have those proactive conversations with coaches, with teachers, but, and then, it's just like all that deep homophobia just emerged when something got, like marriage got, you know, yeah, got challenged. Well, and transphobia for our family in particular, it was just, you know, it's all the rage and everybody's so cool about it to your face. But behind, behind the scenes, it's just, it's, you know, like any endemic problem in our culture that doesn't know how to work with difference. Yeah. From exactly. what they're used to. Yeah, it's amazing. I am still just really kind of in, what's the word, God smacked about how many places we've overlapped. <laughs> it's really, wow. It's totally wild. It's wild. Would you please tell us what you're currently up to, how to get a hold of you, the name of your books, all of those things? Sure. Thank you so much. So my um, most recent book is called The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing, and Social Justice. And um, you can just find that at thepoliticsoftrauma.com is the book's website. Um, And then Healing Sex has been out since 1999. It's a very long time. Um, And uh, I'm glad it still feels relevant to people. Um, So folks can, can find that just under Healing Sex. And there's actually a a uh, movie that we made an MP3 online. Um, that was a piece that a couple of friends of mine and and I did afterwards of folks like watching a healing movie instead. Folks can find me actually through the book's website, and then I have a website coming out this fall. But I I it's it's coming, but it's not up yet. Yeah. Um, but mostly through the book website, you can also sign up for a mailing list, and then I can keep you abreast as to what I am up to. Great. Will you drop the, the website title here for us? It's called? The, the politics of trauma.com is the book's website. Great. And then my website will just be stacyhaines.com Perfect. when it's up. Perfect. Cool. And you are also teaching. Um, you, you have been affiliated with Strozzi. I think you have a class coming up at Strozzi. Is that right? Yeah, there's so uh, the Embody Lab, the online platform with Angel Kyoto Williams I teach with. Um, I teach a couple programs per year at Strozzi Institute. And all of these you can find online. <laughs> and then we can we can put some links in. 
Wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, so I'm going to stop us, tell you how much I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Anything else you want to put in here so that you feel complete with our interview today? No, just delighted. It feels like we just started, but I really appreciate what you're doing and creating this kind of space. So thank you so much and happy to be here with you. Same. You've been listening to the Queer Body Podcast, where we are redefining the edges of queer identity and healing. For more information about Dr. Laura Polak or our podcast, check out our website, communityholistichealth.com. Thank you for listening.